Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 91 of Energy Talks, and today I'm going to be talking to Chloe Herrera, who is an analyst at Lux Research and leads the energy storage team's coverage of battery technology for electric vehicles and stationary storage. And long-duration stationary storage is what we're going to be talking about today. And of course, this is really important because we're seeing a an amazing uh, adoption of renewables technology in the last year or two, and it's expected that wind and solar in particular are going to be expanding uh, even more uh, over the course of the next decade. And the question then becomes, how do we deal with intermittency uh, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine and long duration storage is part of the answer to that. So welcome to the interview, Chloe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, this is really, I, I, you know, it's a bit technical, it's a bit nerdy, and I, I get that, but it really gets to the heart of how we're going to design electrical systems, power grids of the 21st century. And lithium ion gets almost all the attention in the media, you know, in public conversations, but uh, it's only suited to to shorter duration maybe four hours six hours maybe eight hours and it's the it seems like it's the 12 to 16 hours the 24 hours maybe even a you know seven days that are the, the big technical challenges and that's why i liked your report so much is because you you uh summarize the the four main categories of long duration storage and talk about some of the technical challenges, where the technologies are at, some of the players. I've interviewed a few of the players, so I'm very interested in those companies. Uh, and maybe what we could do uh, is uh, start with, uh, you know, I have a question for you. This, I understand why your study excluded pumped hydro. Um, the big, you know, that's a, a study topic all on its own. But I'm very curious about hydrogen because the last, out of the last three episodes of Energy Talks, we've two of them have been on hydrogen and one four, but one very a, a chemical engineer who is very much against doesn't think hydrogen is economic has any application in any space almost. So, if you could, uh, is any can you give us an idea? Uh, answer the question in briefly, will hydrogen play a role in the future in long duration storage for power grids and other big electrical systems? Yeah, so hydrogen is a very complex topic, right? Um, you not only have to deal with the technical challenges of it, but also, you know, the infrastructure related challenges. Um and typically with using hydrogen for energy storage, you have really low efficiencies, which can then really uh, make the economics not look so great. 
Um, when it comes to this 100 hours or more, the seasonal energy storage, there's not really an electrochemical solution for that. Um, of course, you have things like metal air batteries, like Form Energy is putting out the iron air battery um, that can run for like 100 hours, 125 hours. Um, but apart from those, um, you know, you're really going to need these solutions like hydrogen. So if I were to summarize, it would be that that hydrogen may not be the most efficient uh, way to store energy, but given the issues we've got around long, long duration, uh, despite the costs, we still might have to rely on it. It, 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 it will likely be integrated into, into uh, power grids? Well, I think, first of all, you have to question, do you need long duration energy storage like that? Um, I think that in a lot of grids, you can kind of get away from, from you know, having that multi-day seasonal energy storage. Um, and if you do need it, you can rely on maybe like a like a metal air battery. So I think that it's it's really going to depend on what the what the regional grids uh, requirements are. Um, and yes, there will be a spot for hydrogen. It de it depends on, of course, like the requirements again, um, how large of a market share hydrogen will have. Gotcha. And that was a really important uh, uh, conclusion, I think, or an observation that came out of your study, is that especially in the U.S., there are so many regional grids. You may you may have these big, uh, you know, the authorities like ERCOT and and uh, and so on, but but really you have many many regional grids, and so the the different technologies will be suitable will be adopted, all uh, four of these technologies will be adopted in various ways and to various degrees, depending on the makeup of that that grid. And I, I've, but in Canada is very, very different because we have so much hydro here. We get 60% of our, our electricity from hydro and we have uh, four big hydro provinces. So BC on the West Coast, where I live, um, Manitoba, where I grew up actually, uh, my uh, my dad worked for hydro and I worked for hydro uh, an hour, for a year after high school. Uh, and then Quebec, of course, which is massive, massive hydro resources, and then Newfoundland and Labrador on the East Coast. And, and so the adoption of the technologies we're talking about today would be very much affected by the extent to which we can, Canada can integrate those hydro provinces with other provinces that have renewables capacity, like in Western Canada, for instance, you've got Alberta and Saskatchewan with very good wind and solar resources bookended by BC and Manitoba with the hydro resources. And, and it might be that these technologies are supplements, you know, depending on, on the, you know, the regional nature of the, you know, just how those provincial grids are, are constructed. Uh, but we're not very good at doing East West electricity trade. In fact, we're terrible at it. And so it may be that if we can't overcome the politics of East-West electricity trade, we might have to rely more on these kinds of technologies for to accommodate renewables in provincial uh, in, in provincial grids. And that actually becomes then a very different conversation 
and it's maybe a way around these stale political stalemates we find ourselves. So sorry, I went off on a bit of a rant there uh, to, to explain. But it's so different between Canada and the U.S. And as the grids become more integrated, I think these are important questions. But grist for another another uh, podcast. So let's talk about your podcast episode. Uh, and there are four technologies, but two uh, primary categories, electrochemical and mechanical. Have I got it right? Yep. Yep. That's how we've separated them. Well, let's talk about the electrochemical first and flow batteries. Now I've done interviews with flow, with uh, developers of flow batteries, and this seems to be a technology that fits in the 12 to 16 hour duration range. Is that, is that correct? Um, it can. Uh, a lot of what we're seeing deployed today is really in the four to five hour range, but I think that's more reflective of what the market is asking for. Um, and really the great thing about flow batteries is that you can have as long a discharge duration as you want. You just have to have a larger electrolyte tank. So, so power and energy, they don't scale dependently. Um, and I think, well, there's a caveat there. If you're using like a hybrid flow system, um, that's not necessarily true because, uh, you know, then you have electrodes that, you know, uh, it's harder, it's harder to do that independent scaling. Um, but for true flow batteries, yeah, the, the 10 to 12 hour range is where it could sit. Just for those of us who are not engineers, could you explain the difference between power and energy? Yeah, so so power in a flow battery is where um, the the stack of the flow battery sits. That's really where um, the it's. I guess if we want to make it more general, uh, power in an energy storage system is really going to be like the megawatts, the the inverters, the, the power electronics, things like that. Whereas energy is really going to be associated with the duration. So how long can you get a certain amount of power going? Okay. Well, let's talk about, the, so the flow batteries, uh, the best known ones are the vanadium redox flow batteries. And uh, that's the most mature uh, technology. What are the... Uh, what are the impetuses to adopt these and what are some of the obstacles that uh, they're facing? Yeah. Um, so I think that if you have listeners who really love vanadium redox flow batteries, uh, they might disagree with me, but um, we're actually getting a little more critical of vanadium redox flow batteries because they have sustained high costs of vanadium. Um, China controls over 60% of the world's vanadium. Um, and what we're seeing just in the general energy space is that uh, geopolitics is playing a larger role in kind of how technology is adopted. Um, and so a lot of vanadium redox flow battery batteries that are being deployed are in China. Um, and the vanadium batteries that are being deployed out of China are still relatively small seeing that market acceleration that you might have expected to see back in like 2018. Well, since you brought up China, I want to ask this question. And it's, uh, we've had the Inflation Reduction, Reduction Act passed in the U.S. And which is designed to build, uh, you know, um, 
energy supply chains here that are currently dominated by other countries, particularly China, and battery storage is a big one. On the EV side, China just absolutely dominates, you know, uh, uh, refining and processing for batteries. I think it's like 77 or 80 percent of the capacity is in China and and other parts of the supply chain as well. And one of the uh, strategies that I've seen suggested uh, for North America as the U.S. government and, and industries begin to create supply uh, supply chains in North America, which could include Canada and Mexico as well, of course, uh, and that is to bypass some of the more mature technologies and, and uh, focus on what North America does really well, which is innovate. And it struck me as I was reading your, your study that this might be a way, these technologies might be a way for North America to leapfrog China and sort of, you know, develop these new leading edge technologies like flow battery, metal air batteries and so on. What's your take on that? I would say that's that's mostly accurate. Um, so, you know, like we have seen with the 2.8 billion that they've invested into lithium ion manufacturing, the United States is very interested in kind of securing its own uh, energy capacity. Um, I think that if we think about other stationary storage technologies, um, there are American companies like, for example, ESS Inc. that does the iron flow battery. Um, there's other there's other companies like zinc airflow batteries, um, and those are uh, convenient to manufacture in the U.S. because you know we have the material uh, and it doesn't create dependencies on other countries. Um, and I think that moving forward, we will see more and more support for those technologies because the United States is going to uh, award grants, award projects to these developers to kind of build up their capacities. Um, and I think and I think that's going to really be the biggest uh, advantage to these companies. Um, that you won't get with uh, technology developers who are coming out of, outside of the United States. Right. So geopolitics might play a big role uh, in, in how, in which technologies ultimately get developed, how quickly they get developed, where, how quickly they get deployed uh, and, and so on. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about the um, suitability of flow batteries for microgrid support. And this is really interesting to me because I was reading a report from the Alberta uh, electricity system operator uh, that was came out last year. And the thing that came through really loud and clear is that there real because there are there's a lot of big industry in Alberta related to the oil and gas industry, upgraders and and refineries, that sort of thing. And the the operator or the uh, utilities and other folks in, in, in involved in this are worried that at some point these uh, big commercial operations will self-generate. And they uh, and I would assume that that's kind of, you know, it's like you've got a big chemical, like a petrochemical complex and you develop your own microgrid and you you you, you either, I don't I suppose they would they would get off the grid because that would be too risky. But they they might 
you know, for all intents and purposes, not draw much electricity from the grid, you lose big corporate customer, and then who pays for the rest of the the infrastructure and so on. So these are these are big questions. Is it likely that flow batteries or any of these other technologies would enable those kinds of big customers to go it alone and either you know cut the cord to the the grid or reduce their dependence on the grid? So. I haven't really thought of it that way. I think that, you know, a lot of the big commercial customers with big loads, it's actually beneficial for the utilities to, for them to kind of get off the grid a little bit. Um, and in fact, you can kind of imagine that if a commercial operator does have a flow battery, they do have their own power production, they can then become a, like a flexible asset for the utility, right? So they can they can draw power when the utility needs them to. They can actually give power back when they need to. Um, and I think that it could really be a beneficial relationship. Um, what I think is the uh, interesting use case of flow batteries is for microgrids for resiliency. So, you know, with a lot of weather related incidents coming up, uh, disrupting a lot of electricity supply, um, Flow batteries work really well in those situations because, um, again, like I said, you're not really seeing like those really long duration flow batteries, um, but because they are electrochemical, they can uh, respond really quickly for backup situations um, and provide that sustained power. Oh, interesting. I could see then uh, someplace like California uh, right. might be a, a really big uh, a market for, for flow batteries. Um, okay, well, let's talk about metal air batteries. Um, what can you tell us about these? So metal air batteries are a class of batteries where you're using metal at the anode, and then you have a, an air breathing cathode that usually typically has like a catalyst to, to have a, a chemical reaction. Um, the types of metal air batteries are iron air, aluminum air, lithium air, uh, and zinc air. Those are kind of the more the four main. And then for stationary storage, you're typically going to see a zinc air or an iron air um, with form energy really being one of the only iron air developers I'm aware of. Um, the benefits of, of metal air batteries is that they typically have low cost materials. Um, so for like iron and zinc, you have really low cost materials. Um, and that's really good because they um, can discharge for very long durations up to 100 hundred hours, um, but they can also come um, in smaller system sizes. So they work really well for these backup applications. Um, and you don't necessarily always want like a lithium ion battery for backup applications because that's a really expensive system. And you don't really want your expensive lithium ion battery to sit idle for uh, weeks on end. Um, however, the drawbacks to metal air batteries is that they typically have really low efficiencies in like the 60%. Um, sometimes you can get up to 70%. Um, but at those long discharge durations, the, the efficiency kind of becomes less of an issue. Now, what about, uh, I noticed your, your uh, report noted that uh, development of low-cost air cathodes is a major challenge because of the high cost of catalyst material, precious metals like platinum and gold. Is there, is there any way around that? Yeah, so we've seen that um, air cathode developers are finding other materials. Um, off the top of my head, I can't actually uh, remember what any of them are. Um, 
But the trade-off with using kind of less rare metals is that you might not have as great uh, as great performance. Okay, fair enough. And this uh, leads me to another question uh, that I made this argument before on this podcast uh, because other experts have have uh, have told me about it. But I'd, I'd be curious about your view. It, the battery space, whether it's EV batteries. Uh, or whether it's stationary storage, like we're talking about here, seems to me to be an amazingly innovative space. Like, I don't think if when you're talking to the average, uh, because I guess to get this on social media all the time, you know, oh my God, what are we going to do when the, you know, the sun isn't shining and the air, the wind isn't blowing and oh, no, no. And I don't think the average person understands how much innovation is going on, how much the resources that are being poured into battery research and development and innovation. I mean, it's, it's one thing for the, the R and D, but then there's the engineering to actually turn it into a commercial project. And, and it seems to me that this is, we're already seeing the benefits of this, certainly on the lithium ion on site in, in electric vehicles, but we're going to be seeing a lot more in the next decade. And would you agree or disagree with, with that observation? I agree. I think the challenging thing with stationary storage is that, like you said, there are a lot of technologies, but all of these technologies have different application fits. And all of these applications are either new to the grid. And so there's not really a way for utilities or uh, power producers to kind of understand how they can be integrated and uh, mixed and matched and optimized. Um, and that I think is really one of the big challenges. Right. Okay. So you've got a variety of different te technologies and we're just figuring out how to integrate them into grids and, and into, into regional, uh, regional power systems. Let's, the next one I want to talk about is one that I have a particular interest in because the, the leader uh, in compressed air storage, and I guess the, the third category is compressed and liquid air energy. But I want to talk about compressed air in particular because I've interviewed uh, Hydrostore, which is a Toronto company, a Canadian company, a couple of times, and they seem to be leading in this space. They've got a California project going. And just very quickly, if I understand, if I understand this correctly, is you know, they 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 excavate their own cavern, uh, they compress air in the cavern. Uh, using and and the electricity comes from you know for instance uh, solar power that might be uh, curtailed uh, in normal times and and then the uh, air is released through a, a turbine when they need to generate power have, have I got that the technology basically right more or less yeah there's there's some like thermodynamics <laughs> right. details uh, to make it more efficient and things like that but that's that's the general idea so what's the potential here? So I agree, Hydrostore is really one of the one of the companies that's been most active in compressed air energy storage development, but we can't ignore China. Um, they are breaking ground, I think, on their second or third compressed air project this year um, and started uh, last year, started the first compressed air project in years. Um, so China, I think, is really pushing ahead on this. And the reason that they're pushing ahead on this is because compressed air allows for bulk energy storage um, and depending on the size of your cavern or you know if you want to put it in tanks, the, how many tanks you're, you're storing your air in, 
um, it's a really good alternative to maybe like pumped hydro, right? Um, because you have these large scale energy storage projects. Now you're not gonna get the, the flexibility of like an electrochemical technology. So you might have to do like uh, bulk energy shifting, things like that with this technology. Um, but um, when you really need that type of, uh, that type of energy storage, compressed air is, is a good choice. And um, you note in the uh, in the study that over the past five years, uh, 500 million American, or, you know, U.S. dollars have been in, invested. 63% of that went to HydroStore in, in 2022, and it, mm -hmm. it looks like HydroStore is going to be the the leader in in this particular space. So we'll have to keep an eye out uh, on them. Um, what about uh, liquid air energy? Uh, this is not something I've I've run across before. Yeah, so there's two kind of developers that I'm aware of that we view more or less positively. The first is Highview Power, um, and they compress ambient air. Uh, they do it cryogenically and to uh, kind of discharge their battery that that air expands um, and you get energy. The other option is to compress carbon dioxide. So that's what Energy Dome is doing. Um, it's not like underground storage or anything. They're storing their carbon dioxide in an above ground kind of dome. Um, they say that by liquefying carbon dioxide rather than ambient air, you do get a uh, much higher energy density. Uh, you get comparable efficiencies, um, but the real, the real advantage is kind of that footprint reduction. Okay. Just out of curiosity, uh, this, this thought just struck me is that if you were hydro store and so you're compressing air and storing it in, a, in an underground cavern, could you compress CO2 in the same way and, and then release it through your turbines, capture it again, store it again in the, in the cavern and just keep recycling that, that uh, uh, CO2. And of course, you know, your efficiencies wouldn't be that high, but if you're using, you know, like uh, like solar uh, power with a marginal cost of almost zero would it i don't know is, is anybody working on that kind of a system so that's kind of what energy dome is doing um but they're compressing it into like super critical co2 the the drawbacks are that you can't really store it for that long um so you're not going to get like a seasonal energy storage out of that okay fair enough yeah um the, the last one is mechanical energy storage. And I've seen p photos of some of these, you know, they're lifting big rocks, they're lifting big, uh, you know, uh, chunks of concrete. And I have to tell you, it looks ridiculous. Uh, it just, it just doesn't look like it could possibly be efficient and, and a, a workable system. And yet it sounds like there are some companies going ahead with this. Yeah, Lux has been historically pretty critical of gravity energy storage. Um, it is pretty efficient. So uh, one company that's developing the technology has efficiencies, you know, of 80%, even a little more. Um, the issues there are really going to be in that large footprint. So the energy density of these systems is really small um, and the construction costs. So for example, to remotely build a very large gravitational energy storage system, you're gonna have to import a lot of materials. 
um, you're basically building a skyscraper in the middle of nowhere. Um, and that's just going to be e extremely expensive for, for a system that you could get doing another technology. Right. You need a lot of space. You're going to have a lot of wear and tear on the, on the equipment. Okay. So this right. would be kind of a marginal technology where, you know, with very specific applications, maybe. Yeah. We don't anticipate to see a lot of growth or a lot of adoption outside of kind of very, very niche applications. Okay. Well, let's talk about who some of the players are or where these technologies are coming from. Cause this was, I thought very interesting and I'm, I'm particularly interested in it because of the way uh, the United States, in, you know, has, has realized that they've fallen behind. You know, it was like, I, I keep coming back over and over again to, to uh, Joe Biden's 2020 campaign documents, you know, where he talked, there's a section in there on clean energy where he basically said, oh, oh uh, this is the emerging economy of, you know, the, the, the next, you know, the rest of the century. And we've allowed China to take a big lead on us. And we now we're, we're at best second in the world, maybe third behind Europe. This is bad. We're going to we're going to put some money into this and we're going to fix it and put US back in the driver's seat by 2030 is what he what he argued. And you can see the the Inflation Reduction Act flowing out of that out of that that commitment. But so I as I I work on the assumption that, you know, like on the EV side, China has such a big big lead. Asia has such a big lead over Europe and and North America. Uh, but on in this particular space, it's much the competition is much more uh, uh, equitable, isn't it? Or even, I guess. Yeah, I would say in terms of technology development, the U.S. has pretty consistently invested in different research projects. Like the Department of Energy has pretty consistently had an ongoing investment in different long duration storage technologies. Um, what I would like to see next is more investment in developing projects. So, you know, I've talked to project developers and I've said, okay, why did you incorporate a flow battery? And their honest answer is because there was a grant available. If we didn't have a grant available to bring down the cost of this flow battery, we would have just gone with a lithium ion battery, right? So there really needs to be more project development because the US has the technology. Um, it just hasn't really had the chance to to be proven in the field. Oh, so the, is, is this a classic case where uh, the government has to come in and de-risk these early stage technologies because they're critical to the future of the economy? And and so there's a good argument for them to, de, you know, government to de-risk it to the point where then the private sector can come in and say, okay, now we're prepared to to invest in, in scale it up because it's commercial. Is that is that kind of the process we're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, integration is really going to be a huge challenge for energy storage. How do you integrate new technologies that haven't been used before um, and you want to use them on a utility scale, grid scale, um, but nobody's really sure how that's going to play out. Um, so developing smaller projects, developing pilot projects, that's really important for getting a lot of these technologies out the door. Now your your report made an, some interesting observations about whether the uh, the developers of these uh, or the, maybe they're doing the R and D 
whether it's corporate, small, medium enterprises, the SMEs, or the research institutes. And it sounds like different regions have taken different approaches. So the Asia Pacific is is a lot of the research almost, you know, is in the is in research institutes. The uh, if I understand this correctly, Americas have more of the SMEs than the than the other regions, and and the corporate maybe a little stronger in Europe. It, it, why why is why are they taking the different approaches? Yeah, I think part of that comes down to the economic structures of technology development. So in China, there's not a lot of venture capital, right? So when you have a new technology coming out of a university, you it doesn't typically turn into a startup. Um, it typically either gets directly fed into a larger company that already exists, and there's you know that that private partnership. Um, whereas in the U.S. There's a lot of spin-offs, spin-outs that do, um, you know, different different startup activities, and the U.S. is really good at that. Um, so that's kind of why we're seeing that division. Gotcha. So we're talking about spin-offs could be spin-off from an existing company. A uh, common model is spin-off out of academics. Uh, mm -hmm. we're, we're seeing that. I mean, we see that a lot in Canada as well. Research universities like the University of Calgary are always uh, spinning off uh, uh, startups uh, that um, and, and there are they're now putting in place an quote unquote ecosystem to help them get them over the first hump. Uh, and then and then eventually once they've they're close to uh, uh you know, commercializing the technology, then they they need help to scale as well. Which leads me to a question. Here, this is a philosophical issue, because I'm old enough to remember decades of public debate around should government fund this stuff. You know, why shouldn't corp? Now we see like Mariana Mazzucato coming in and saying, you know, look at this. You know, the state has to, the entrepreneurial state has to de-risk these technologies. They have to spend money. Uh, this is actually, I think, the the failure rate for U.S. Uh, Department of Energy loans to energy companies is only like three percent. It's basically the same rate as the as private capital, uh, and and it, it is there a recognition now, uh, and maybe there always has been in the U.S., but certainly less so in Canada, that government just has to come in and de-risk this stuff, or we're going to get left behind. I don't think so. I think that's really, at least in the U.S., just a very recent uh, attitude or feeling because it's very administration uh, determined, right? So in the next couple of years, there might be a shift in policy that doesn't necessarily focus on climate climate tech. Um, we hope that doesn't happen. We hope this is here to stay. Um, but for the most part in the U.S., a lot of um, innovation Yes, the U.S. government has been useful, but a lot of it is kind of privately funded and and motivated. Um, okay, I so think, like you said, it's it's that kind of like which comes first, government support or private support. Um, and here, it's it's really kind of been the private support has come first. Oh, that's interesting. I because I was um, uh, I was under the impression that it might actually be the other way around because of the active role that the Department of Energy has played for a long time in, in funding research and development and early stage commercialization. 
But I mean, even I, I suppose, given the, the scale of technology development in the U.S., even if the, the DOE is very active, it could still be dwarfed by private capital. Yeah, I think, well, I think maybe I'm thinking more of like on the integration side, but if we're talking about very like fundamental research, yes, uh, the U.S. government has been very active. I think just historically, the U.S. has prided itself on its uh on its strength in the sciences. And, and a lot of that is helping the energy storage industry. Got it. Got it. And I think we're going to have this discussion in, in Canada because we're behind the curve on, on this particular uh, topic. Uh, we still, uh, rather than, you know, properly funding research and development or properly, pro properly funding early stage commercialization, what we do is we sprinkle a little bit of money around just enough to create problems for the firm, but not enough to really solve the problem. And and we really, and and I think that's that's an issue that's come up for discussion. And uh, I know just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, our finance minister, who's kind of leads economic policy in Canada, was talking about a real muscular industrial policy. And 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 pointing to the U.S. and the Inflation Reduction Act as a model, and and the implication is because she hasn't brought forward policy yet uh, or budget, uh, the implication is that there will be a lot more of the kind of uh, financial support for emerging technologies and R and D that we see in the U.S. So that's some, and I, and I would assume that state that's uh, energy storage, uh, particularly stationary. Uh, will be a focus of that. So we'll have to wait and, and see how that turns out. Well, uh, Chloe, this has been a fascinating conversation uh, and uh, everything that I had hoped it would be. Uh, any final thoughts? Um, I think that a lot of people are excited about the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, but for reference, the European Battery Alliance put $12 billion into their program last year, or maybe it was this year. So $2.8 billion, it's a really good start um, and we've seen increased interest in like uh, raw materials extraction technologies, things like that. But this is really only the beginning. And in in no way is 2.8 billion going to put the US on the map in terms of being the best battery manufacturing region. Um, it takes years to build this up. Um, and I'm assuming that for the energy storage uh, industry, as in non-lithium ion technologies, it's going to be similarly pretty difficult, um, but because there's so many different technologies, um, you know, you don't have to build to that kind of scale. So I think I think we will start seeing a little bit more regional uh, manufacturing of those types of technologies. Interesting. Well, maybe in the next couple of years, we'll come back and talk to you about how integration is going yeah. out in, in yeah. those regional uh, power systems. Well, thank you very much for this, Chloe. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me.